for topics, I definitely want to talk about Crystal and Lucky, contrast them with Rails, because I think that'll be particularly interesting. Oh, let me... But then anything else you want to cover, any questions you have for me? What are you singing? The song. Oh, the song. Oh, that clarifies which song you were singing. This is good. Oh, because you get lucky. I got it. It took me a second. You were waiting? You were waiting for that? I should be warming up with music, though. That's good. I forgot to do I used to do that with Upcase, and that was great. I need to do that more. Get lucky. See you later, Tom. Bye. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Paul Smith, developer here in our Boston office. Hello, Paul. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. So you have been on some adventures of late into somewhat uncharted territories, or less charted by others in our office. Particularly, you've been spending a lot of time with a programming language called Crystal, and you've even built your own framework. So I have like 900 questions about all of that. But why don't we start with the simplest one of, can you tell us a little bit about Crystal so that we understand sort of the foundation that we're working with here? Yeah, definitely. So Crystal is a language that looks a lot like Ruby. In fact, on the surface, it looks almost identical. But once you start diving in, there's definitely some differences. For one thing, it's compiled. Hmm. So it's very, very fast, unlike Ruby. Ruby's not terribly fast. You're right. Yes. <laughs> fast enough in most cases, let's be clear, but yeah. it is not known for its speediness. So, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I love Ruby. I use it fairly often, pretty much every day of my mm-hmm. working life. So it's definitely great, but if things can be faster, that's always good. And Crystal is quite fast. The biggest difference, though, is that it is also type safe. So Unlike Ruby, you sometimes need to define what types things are. So, for instance, if you have a user class and it has a name, you have to say, oh, the name is a string Mm -hmm. or age is an integer or whatever else. The good part about that is that the compiler will catch errors for you at compile time. I'd say that's probably the biggest difference. um, That's a pretty big difference because Ruby certainly leans on its dynamic nature pretty strongly in Rails as well, I think embraces that very strongly. Um, so like as one particular example, if you're defining database-backed model, you will explicitly enumerate all of the attributes, all the database fields, and their associated types in your Crystal class. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. There are macros in Crystal, so you could technically do something like Rails, where you query the database see what the columns are, and generate basically those type signatures automatically. You would do that as like a code generation step? Is that what you mean? Mm Yes, at compile time. That is not what Lucky does, and I don't think... There may be one other library that does that, and Mm -hmm. most don't. I think it's pretty nice to open up a class and see what's available and what the types are. Yep. There's a gem for Ruby that actually does that and like injects them as a comment. I mean, I constantly look at the DB structure, DB schema, or whatever else to see what I have available. I don't think I'm the only one that does that. No, (laughs) no, no. I'm very good at getting between those files. And that is only because I need to be very good. It comes up constantly, frankly. So in this case, in Lucky, you do define the types. You also define whether it can be nil or not. So that's a difference between some type languages mm-hmm. where nil isn't really a type. So you can call methods on nil and get something like null pointer exception, like mm-hmm. in Java. In Crystal, 
you say whether something's nil. So, for example, if you had a nickname field on a user, you could say that's a string or nil. And if you were going to say call upcase on it or downcase, say user dot nickname dot downcase, the compiler will tell you that nil doesn't have that. Right. So you and haven't so handled that exactly. Branch of... It forces you to say if the nickname's there, then call upcase right. or downcase or whatever else, which is like one of the biggest bugs you can have in Ruby. Yep, nil does come up a lot. We've written and talked about it a lot here at ThoughtPot. It definitely is a, a pervasive theme and one of the things you have to be very careful with because it often the nil ends up blowing up well away from where the nil originated. Yeah. Uh, it's actually one of the things that I see a lot in code review is discussions of like, oh, can you use fetch here to pull a, a value out of a hash instead of just hash member access because fetch will throw an error if that's not present. And so that forces that error closer to where it's actually happening. But that's a case where we've had to like actively say, this could be nil. We know that. Therefore, we code reviewers are acting as the compiler. But um, Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of interesting that uh, I feel like at ThoughtBot, we're doing a lot of typed and compiled languages mm-hmm. lately. There's a lot of Elm. There's some interest in Haskell, maybe not as much. Um, I think Scala is kind of taking the place of the Haskell fans because mm-hmm. it's more approachable. But yeah, these very strongly typed languages. Yep. And I feel like when Rails first kind of came out, one of the big deals was that it wasn't compiled and that you can just be free and do yep. whatever you want and things are fast. I don't necessarily fast. remember exactly what the landscape looked like at that point, but I think like Java was around and yep. Java was a primary example of a compiled language and potentially C Sharp I've seen talked about in, in more friendly terms than Java, mm-hmm. but even uh, that may be a different version than what we see today and what I see being like, people, are like, yeah, I like C Sharp, but broadly speaking... Rails and Ruby almost feel like a reaction to Java specifically. Like yeah. that, I don't like compilers because they are yeah. mean. <laughs> well, they can be, or they can be friendly and useful and helpful. And and we've, yeah, I'm definitely seeing the same sort of theme here at ThoughtBot of a lot of exploration. I don't think we've settled on anything yet, but I think it's mm-hmm. great that individuals and even across different offices, we're seeing folks lean into and explore different languages and different paradigms even. Um, like Elm, that pushes you pretty far in a different direction. And I, I think... Those are all good things. Those are all useful things. Even when I'm writing Ruby code, I bring back ideas from some of those other languages and being more aggressive about returning a single type from a method, even if that single type can be like a guest user or a regular user. That's an example of, I think, bringing those same ideas back into Ruby, even though Ruby doesn't have a compile time type system or strong type system in that way. Yeah, I found the same thing. For instance, uh, Joel talks a lot about algebraic data types Mm -hmm. and how to... Basically, ways to avoid Booleans, for example, or mm-hmm. a nil and true and false, just having names for those things. Yep. So rather than saying um, this person is employed as like a Boolean, mm-hmm. you would have a status that's employed or unemployed. Right. And then if, say, something else comes up, like maybe you want full-time and part-time, you no longer have this Boolean, you just add another thing that that can be. Yep. And that's really nice. But I guess the reason I bring up that, like, when Rails first came out, there's very kind of a lot of anti-Java yep. hate. And to some degree, that was with reason. The compiler didn't really catch that much. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, like, you still get no pointer exceptions all the time. It was a pain to write out the type signatures. Very verbose, very it's repetitive. Very verbose. Yeah. So in my mind, and I'm guessing at least in a lot of other people's minds that do Ruby or PHP or Python or any of these you know, non-compiled languages, 
and maybe even Elixir, uh, though it is compiled, it doesn't do a whole lot with the type system. Mm-hmm. My guess is there's like a little bit of hesitance to yep. use a compiler or I've been burnt see the once benefits. before. Exactly, yep. yeah. And I was very much like that. Mm-hmm. I, I really didn't care. I didn't want to deal with the types. I didn't want to deal with the compiler. Mm-hmm. And another reason, I think, for that is that you have to use the compiler well. Just like you can write tests that are so horrible that yep. you would almost rather not have them at all, that doesn't mean tests are bad. It just means you need to learn how to use them well. And right. I would say the same is true for compilers. You can use them poorly, mm-hmm. and they will catch hardly any bugs and mostly just be incredibly annoying. Yep. I've heard uh, Joe Ferris, our CTO, using the phrase having a conversation with the compiler and that a conversation is a back and forth and that you need to give it information so that it can then you know, take that information, use it, and provide you more assistance, or also the phrase of moving more into the type system. So what you're saying mm-hmm. about the algebraic data types there is a way to encode more knowledge or more names or more things that are familiar to us into the type system, such that the big calculator essentially that is running within the compiler is able to spot more things that are incorrect states for the application and highlight them to us, but also do that hopefully in a friendly way. Yeah, definitely. That was something that was a huge goal with uh, Lucky, the Mm. web framework I'm writing for Crystal, trying to give types to everything that I possibly could. Mm -hmm. So that means even things like route helpers. Instead of generating just a random string or having helper methods or anything like that or hard coding a path into a link, Mm -hmm. for example, that's all type safe. So you would have an action like users show and it might have an ID parameter, and that is 100% type safe. Mm-hmm. What that means is when you generate the link, you would say this goes to the user's show with the user ID. If that action doesn't exist, it will blow up. If you're missing a parameter or give it an incorrect parameter, mm-hmm. it'll blow up and tell you, and once again, like exactly where the problem is, right. right? Instead of just generating a link that doesn't go anywhere and you find out who knows when, you know immediately and you know Mm -hmm. exactly where the problem is. So I have a a question specific to that example. One of the features that I've really enjoyed in, say, Haskell, or I think Elm has recently made some steps in in this direction, is the idea of new types, which are wrappers around primitive types like an int Mm -hmm. or a string, but it's saying this is a specialized int or a specialized string. So as an example, when you're talking about the ID there, there's an ID parameter in this URL method, the URL helper. Is it possible to constrain that even further and to say this must be a user ID? And a user ID is, in implementation, an integer, but we know how to differentiate in the type space, in the in the compiler, essentially, between a user ID and like a post ID. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a perfect example of how you can you know give more information mm-hmm. to the compiler. It is definitely possible. I haven't implemented that yet in mm-hmm. Lucky, but it is in the, the pipeline where when you have an action and you have a route, right now you just say, here's a parameter. Mm-hmm. And it'll take basically a string or an integer. Right. I do want to make that type, so you would say this is a user ID okay. or a comment ID. So Crystal's type system does have support for that, but it's not necessarily implemented in Lucky yet. Yeah, it does. And, and the way I would implement that is creating a class called you know user ID. Mm-hmm. And in the constructor, it just accepts the ID. That's it. It's a very simple wrapper. Mm-hmm. And then you would call dot value. So a method, you just add a yep. value method that returns it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very dumb object. 
all it's there for is to give a little information to the compiler to help you know when right. things are wrong. I mean, I think that's very similar to what you were talking about with optionality before, where this thing may or may not be present. Mm -hmm. Uh, the idea of maybe types as they are in uh, Haskell and Elm or option types, depending on the language. That is something that I miss incredibly when I'm working in Ruby or in a lot of other languages. I've actually been playing around with TypeScript a good amount myself lately. And I'm searching for a good implementation of that. TypeScript as a language does not have a first class maybe type or that, that sort of handling. You can do the same sort of thing where you're wrapping it up, but I've seen many different implementations of that. There are many different libraries that say that they are providing that functionality, but they're all slightly different. And I, as the end user, have to make a decision about that, whereas a language like Elm has that built in, maybe as a core concept in the language, and many standard library things will return you a maybe type. Thus, you know you have to handle the two branches of when the value is present or when it's not present. So it's interesting to see the different levels of type safety that you get in individual languages. And it sounds like Crystal's reasonably advanced based on what we're chatting about right now. Yeah, it is. I'd say, I mean, it's not Haskell by any means. No, nothing's Haskell. Yeah. <laughs> Haskell's barely Haskell. And it kind of, it does give you more escape hatches mm -hmm. um, than some other languages. For example, there's a special method called not nil, where you're basically telling the compiler, I know you think this might be nil, but I promise it's not. Uh, the I promise method, yep. Yes, which at that point, you're basically back in Ruby land. You mm -hmm. don't know what that is anymore. Right. If someone else used not nil, you would go back and have to figure out, okay, why is this not nil? Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Someone else said so, but I have no idea why. Right. Nonetheless, I think that's in a way, a good thing so that um, people can kind of get their feet wet and it's yep. not so restrictive, you can't get anything done. And then later on you can learn, oh, okay, here are ways I can avoid using not now. Yeah, I think type systems in general can have a very steep learning curve mm -hmm. or a very like harsh on-ramp. And I'm particularly impressed by the way TypeScript handles it where there's a group of settings that you can progressively enable. Some uh, One of them is called strict null checks. And without that, your code's going to behave pretty similar to JavaScript and it's going to be very permissive. But suddenly you turn that on and you'll see inexhaustive pattern matches. It's not exactly that, but it's that idea of this function does not cover all possible cases. You need to get back in there and try harder. But you can ease into that with TypeScript. And it sounds like Crystal, by having some escape hatches, might provide a similar sort of thing. Yeah, I'd say the entry is definitely a little higher, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a good thing. And the problem I've seen with TypeScript is that because at any time you can say, okay, this is anything, mm -hmm. you can have programs where you don't, you can't really rely on. Right. If you say is. everything is anything, yeah. then you're back to JavaScript. Yeah, you're back to, exactly. Yeah. But that comes back to what you were saying about having that conversation with the compiler and providing that information, because yeah. without it, there's nowhere for the compiler to help you there. Yeah, exactly. And I think. So there definitely are some escape hatches in Crystal. I think they are, there aren't a ton. So mm -hmm. there's not nil. You can also force it to be a particular type. If you're mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is an integer or a string or whatever, you can say, this is an integer. Yep. But there's really easy ways to use the correct type. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that hard to do. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that I love about Crystal is that it gives you a lot of power in the type system, but it's still fairly approachable. Mm -hmm. It's not quite 1.0. So they're still breaking changes. Crystal the language is yes, not Yes, Crystal the language yeah. is not 1.0. You hipster, you. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way to go, pre-1.0. <laughs> so there's definitely some breaking changes. I think that's good because usually the breaking changes are coming because they're improving a method signature mm -hmm. or renaming something. Um, but until 1.0, you can't totally rely on what's there. Yeah. On the flip side, 
the compiler does help you with those things. So when you're relying on a method that is no longer there, it will tell you immediately. Hmm. And so you can then look it up and know exactly where the problem is. Interesting. I imagine this is just going to be my guess, but based on the fact that it's a strongly typed compiled language, you can't, this is a question, but uh, you can't do the sort of dynamic runtime generation of methods and values that you do in Ruby. Like you you don't have method missing, I'm guessing. So actually there is a method missing in Crystal. What even does that mean? I would not use it. Okay. Just like I would also say probably don't use it in Ruby. (laughs) What it does, it does work at compile time. And what it will do is check at compile time. We'll say you have method missing on a, a user object. And you say, okay, if the method's not there, I want to delegate to this JSON object that we have on the user filled with like user preferences or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so when you call dot date of birth, there's no method, but it will call that JSON hash mm-hmm. with the date of birth key. What it will do then at compile time is it will look and say, okay, I've checked all the methods. They're not there. So I'm going to call this method missing hook and give it what the arguments were and what the method was. And it'll basically generate code calling the JSON hash. The problem with that is that you can have some really ugly, nasty errors Mm. because you may call a method that has nothing to do with that, that JSON hash. And you'll just see this message saying something like preferences with the key of who knows what the method is. Mm -hmm. And you have no idea why that is or where it's coming from. In fact, they're thinking of removing it. I think that would be fine. (laughs) Nobody really likes it. It doesn't work well. But in terms of what you can do to generate code, you can do quite a bit. uh, And Lucky takes big advantage of that. So one of the interesting things it does is at compile time, when you start the server, it will parse a manifest.json that has all your assets. So you'll see in Rails and, and Webpack and a lot of things, they'll generate a manifest, and that manifest in production will typically have a cache key mm-hmm. that will change whenever the file changes, right. so you can bust caching. Lucky will read that JSON file, create a hash at compile time, and it has an asset macro that you use in pages. So you'd say asset you know, images slash logo or whatever. At compile time, it checks to see if that asset is there. And if not, it will raise and tell you that that asset's missing, and it'll even tell you, give you a nice did you mean. So if you accidentally do .jpg instead of .jpeg, hmm. it will tell you that. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've added an image, had yep. a slight typo, and then wondered why it's not showing up. Yep. And Lucky will just catch that for you. Well, that's interesting. That sounds like a very uh, practical and grounded uh, example where the type system's just kicking in and being your friend. Let's dig into some Lucky stuff here, because I think we've mm-hmm. talked a good amount about Crystal, but Lucky is actually your creation. It is. You have built your own web framework, which <laughs> is a whole thing for a human to do. I guess my first question, based on what you were just saying, is did you build your own asset pipeline sort of thing in there? No, I okay. didn't. So I was ha- going to be worried if you had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. I've learned from what other people have done uh, in that space. So I was also using Phoenix pretty early on when they didn't have any kind of asset compilation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, they experimented with a bunch of stuff. Phoenix being the web framework that's Rails like in Elixir. Yes. So no, I did experiment with a lot of different options. I experimented with raw Webpack. That was a pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very hard to set up. Uh, I, I did not enjoy it. And I think the biggest problem with, with Webpack is that it makes it difficult to 
have different opinions. So if I had a default Webpack setup that is made for someone doing server-rendered HTML, it would look very, very different for someone doing a single-page app doing React. Mm-hmm. So it's not very flexible at all. Uh, and that sucks when you're building a web framework that kind of wants to appeal to both sides of those camps. In the end, I ended up going with Laravel Mix. And this is interesting because people PHP. see this and they go, what? Exactly. Okay. They go, huh? So, yeah, Laravel is a PHP framework. It's yep. actually really nice. I've been following it, and uh, it's very well done. But they have a thing called Laravel Mix. Mm-hmm. It's basically a thin JavaScript wrapper over Webpack. Okay. So in Rails, you have Webpacker, which isn't a JavaScript layer. It kind of generates JavaScript for you, mm-hmm. from what I can tell. So you'd say, I want to install your Elm Webpack setup. And it would generate a bunch of JavaScript. In Mix, there's a method that you would call, or a function that you would call. So you'd say, mix.react, give it the entry point, give it the exit, and it handles it all. Hmm. So this is nice because you basically have one method wrapping up a lot of what you would normally do in Webpack land. Mm-hmm. You get the full power of Webpack just with a very simple API. Right. It's worked out pretty well so far. Does that run as a separate process? It does. Alongside? Okay. The difference between something like uh, Rails and Lucky is that in Rails, when you use Webpack, you start one process with the Rails server. And in a separate tab or Tmux session or whatever, you have your Webpack process. I don't love that. Oh, um, I didn't. I've not actually worked with Webpacker at this point. I've when I found myself in that world, I've been Rails is running and typically being an API, mm-hmm. and then I have a separate project that is actually managing. Yeah. So I'm doing the same thing, but my experience with Rails has been where the asset pipeline is just built into the whole thing, and I don't have to start a separate process. Okay, so yeah. It's interesting that the Webpacker stuff has brought us to a world where we are actually like. No, this is a different thing. And that may have changed. I do know when it first came out, that for sure was the case. You had I think to it makes sense that processes. that would be the case. I mean, I guess historically Sprockets was running as a weird node sub-process within the Rails process or something like that, but yeah, I'm actually I mean, not even sure now off I, the top of all I don't know if works. anyone is sure how that works anymore. But Lucky does the same thing, two different processes, but by default it uses a process manager. So something like Foreman, Forgo, Overmind is a lesser known, but it's the one that I like the most. Mm -hmm. So when you do Lucky Dev, which is like basically starting everything up, it doesn't just start Lucky. It uses a procfile.dev and starts all the processes there. Gotcha. And so by default, there's the watch process for Lucky and then the asset process for Webpacker. So you never forget to run it. Mm -hmm. It's just there. Interesting. I think one of the things that's been interesting, I, I haven't been following terribly closely, but it's been clear to me that you've been on a pretty grand adventure and building out surprising amounts of functionality in the framework itself and then in supporting libraries. Like uh, you've added testing recently and, and browser level integration tests. And it was interesting watching you sort of scour through the world of Capybara and try and find those best practices that exist and how is this done elsewhere and then bring that back to Lucky, but also sort of provide an opinionated spin on it. So, uh, for instance, one of the things that I've seen is the page object-like API that mm-hmm. you introduced, and that's sort of the core way to do things. Um, so do you want to talk about that for a minute, explain what that is, and then we can yeah. dig in? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I guess I'll, I'll go back just a little bit. Uh, when I started doing Lucky, the goal was not to be like Rails or not like Rails, mm-hmm. or really not like anything. Just take the best ideas that we could from everything. Right. With the main goals being... It needs to be understandable. 
it needs to be easy to write. So I want to be able to prototype quickly mm-hmm. without sacrificing long-term maintenance. That's the dream right there. Uh, yeah. I mean, it sounds like one of these, woo. Uh, that's a heck of a marketing pitch. That's my hope. Yep. It's not totally there yet, mm-hmm. especially because there's just such a lack of plugins. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, right now you can go to Rails and there's a gem for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that is definitely not the Acts case. as e-commerce for, site. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, it's done. Yeah. And right now, there's definitely some stuff you need to do if you want to use Stripe, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But that is the goal, and I think it will be possible. So one of the ideas that I had for Lucky was in the testing library, I wanted to have the idea of flows. So when we talk about what users do and when we talk with designers or stakeholders, we often talk about what flow, like the sign-in flow or the sign-up flow or those, those types of things. So... The library for Lucky is called Lucky Flow. You inherit from a flow object, and that is what has all your typical capybara methods. So mm-hmm. stuff like visit, click, fill in, things like that. By enforcing that kind of from the start, it makes you have well-named methods. Mm-hmm. So you might have an authentication flow with a sign-in method and a sign-out method and a fill-in sign-up form mm-hmm. method. So it makes for really readable, nice-looking tests. But actually, one of my favorite features, uh, that is nice, but my favorite feature by far is the idea of flow IDs. Mm -hmm. So in Capybara specs, you'll often see people referencing text in the application, like UI. Like, you fill out the form, you hit save user. Mm -hmm. Well, what happens if a designer comes, they want to change that to create user, and you have this save user string across 10 different tests. Everything breaks. Yep. Even though, really, the functionality is still there. So some people use classes, but then what happens if the class changes? Right. We're reappropriating classes, which are for styling, to then use as test hooks, essentially. Exactly. And so then some people use data attributes or whatever. But the point is, it's just everywhere. There's Mm -hmm. no real convention. So in Lucky Flow, the convention is to use flow IDs. You give a flow ID attribute, so flow dash ID. Give it a name, like sign in button. And in the test, when you say click, you can say click, at sign, sign in button. And it'll convert that at sign into a flow ID attribute and click it. Mm-hmm. Is that a data attribute that's applied to the element? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in so you HTML. have a little bit of syntactic sugar, I guess, helper methods around both defining those on the HTML nodes and then referencing them from the test classes. Is that right? There's a helper when you're in the test class with the at sign. When you're in the HTML, you just do flow dash ID. You're going to make me write all of that out by hand? It's crazy. It's it's But I I like the consistency. Also, again, I I really like the approach that you're taking here of being purposeful, but also saying, like, I'm going to pull from wherever because I don't know anybody anything. I don't. This doesn't have to be the rails for Crystal. This can be a web framework that will hopefully be productive and maintainable in the long run. And therefore, I'm going to look far and wide. And so like you're going over into PHP land, which I think uh, that particular thing, the flow ID also comes from a PHP. It does. Yes. From Laravel. They have Dusk, which is their version of Capybara. And they have, I think they call them Dusk IDs. Anyway, basically the exact same idea. Mm -hmm. I just ported it over. Yep. I think this sort of harkens back to what we were talking about with when you work in different languages, you bring back ideas from them. And so working in different frameworks and having exposed yourself to that as now, I, I expect it both informs your Rails work, but then also now that you're on this crazy adventure of building your own web framework, because <laughs> that's the easiest way to build a web app, I think, is first build your own web framework. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But you have 
all of these different things to call on and you're not constraining yourself in any way to say like and let's make the most rails like api you'll borrow from rails where that makes sense but then borrow from whatever for any other piece yeah definitely i mean there's a little bit of elm there's a little bit of ecto Mm -hmm. and phoenix and kind of just a mishmash of everything if it works then i'll use it (laughs) does it work most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> where is Lucky at in its lifespan? Right That's now? a great question. This is always hard to answer because it depends on where you're at. Ooh, right? It depends. That's the correct answer uh, yes. to almost any question. <laughs> always, but. always the correct answer. So if you're a huge company, I would not use Lucky or Crystal mm. simply because you're missing on a lot of libraries. There's potential for breaking changes between releases, things like that. Mm-hmm. However, you can use it in production. We have a very tiny app in production. I don't know if I would count that because it's not something where if it went down, the world would end. It'd an, probably take us a day to even notice. An interesting litmus test, but it is an app that is running that performs a business value for us. Particularly, it, it yeah. organizes all of the events that we have at various ThoughtBot offices, meetups and things like that. And it, I think, posts to Slack. It does. It posts to yeah. Slack. It imports from meetup.com. So, I mean, it does stuff. It does stuff. It deploys to Heroku. It's great. (laughs) It's a real web app. It is a real web app. However, there actually is a company using it in production production. Hey-oh. Handling, I think, over a million requests per day. Unfortunately, they can't say what their name is. Nor can you. Yeah, I know. So it's a bit of a bummer. You'll just have to trust me. They do. They hang out. Paul is a very trustworthy individual, (laughs) everyone, just so you know. So I believe him when he says this. They they hang out in our Gitter room, and they're happy to talk about it. They just won't tell you what the name of the company is. But they've had, I think, like a three- or four-fold performance improvement. Hmm. But the biggest thing that they say is that the type system has Mm -hmm. helped them catch so many bugs early on. They said before it's kind of like hanging a shelf, like just in the drywall. You didn't even check for studs, and you just kind of like fingers crossed, hopefully it stays up, as opposed to like bolting that thing in, yeah. finding the, the studs, and that it's made a big difference in, in how reliable their code is. And that was really one of the big goals of, of yeah. Lucky. That must have been great to hear. Yeah, it was awesome, and it's good to know that people are actually running it. It works. And it has delivered real business value Mm -hmm. by speeding things up. I think it's two times as fast as their nearest competitor. They were trying to be as fast or faster, and and they met that goal and exceeded it. Awesome. So you are now, you lead this project, or there's actually a bunch of different packages or shards in the crystal world. That is correct, correct? Uh, A bunch of different shards that have fallen out of this effort. So you're sort of the DHH, not that you have to fill that sort of role, but (laughs) are you a benevolent dictator for life? which Guido actually just stepped down, so that's an interesting one. But the benevolent dictator for life is no longer. That's a side topic. Have you seen this discussion? No, what is this? Uh, Guido Van Rossum is, was the benevolent dictator for life of Python, so the Python language, ah, okay. um, which started at a similar time to Ruby, which is um, 25, maybe more years old now. I think it was 95, feels right. So they've both been going at it for a while, but recent interactions with the community were enough that Guido decided, I'm done. I'm stepping back, and I'm not naming a successor. I'll probably still be around, but my role as chief decision maker has ended. It seemed like he just got very frustrated, which was really interesting to see because he sort of brought a unique outlook to how to run a language. Like, Matz is a very different character than Guido was. And then you see Linus as another example of Mm -hmm. someone prominently at the head of an open source project. And Guido was sort of a nice but very effective human and that combination of reasonable and not mean, I enjoyed having that voice in the world, so I'm a little bit sad. I haven't spent as much time in the Python world of late, but that was sort of the first language that I cut my teeth on, and 
it was a little sad to see that Guido was stepping down. Uh, he'll still be around, but anyway, that's a, that's an aside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's good to know. I, I had no idea. So how do you think about the future of Lucky? Is it something that you're going to continue to do forever? Do you hope that there's a community that's going to build up around it? And if so, do you want to stay at the lead of that community? Or Well, this is a hard question. I don't know if you've I've thought about this either. <laughs> I have thought about it quite a bit, but once again, it depends on so many different things. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what I would like to happen. What I would like to happen is that Crystal and Lucky get big enough to where I can work either work on Lucky full-time or use Lucky full-time. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love Crystal. It is the most exciting language I've used since I started using Ruby like 12 years ago. I donate a few hundred dollars a month to the Crystal team because I want to use it that badly. Wow. Literally putting your money where your mouth is in addition to copious amounts of time. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I read all the time about open source maintainers burning out. Mm -hmm. And everyone says that there's a problem. And yet nothing really changes. Mm -hmm. And so I do kind of want to put my money where my mouth is and say, yes, open source is hard, and so I'm willing to support you. I very much would hope to be able to keep working on this. Of course, things could go wrong. It's very hard to tell if a language is going to survive. Who to bet on JavaScript 20 years ago? That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean... I mean, a couple people, but... (laughs) Yeah, and now it's massive. I never would have thought that. Mm -hmm. And yet now I'm using a text editor that is built using JavaScript. That's good, too. It's a good yeah, code. VS good. Code specifically is the text editor that Paul yes. is referring to here. It's surprisingly good. I so, mean, it's written in TypeScript, to be clear. That is true. So it's a okay. variant, and it has a type system and has some more advanced features and things. So it's slightly different. But it's still, it is surprising that that's what so much of the world is made out of. And our chat app every day runs in an Electron shell, and it's just a web app. And I don't, yeah. that's Slack in this case. Uh, I think that's crazy. Or the world Ruby. is surprising. How long yeah. was Ruby around before it picked up? Yep. You know, for a long time, it was just kind of this thing that some people used. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it could be that Crystal just doesn't pick up. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, I'd say one of the biggest things would be because it looks too similar to Ruby, hmm. that Rubyists might be like, oh, this is cool. And everyone else will just say, so this is Ruby. Yep. And it's really not. Right. It's very different. It was interesting. I had Herman on a few episodes ago, and we were talking about Elixir, and it, a very similar theme came out of that conversation, which is like, Elixir looks a lot like Ruby. It was intended mm-hmm. to have a similar syntax, but is also very different in these in deep, impactful ways. And there's a similar concern. And like, actually, in that episode, Herman sort of changed my mind about the utility or the interesting aspects of Elixir. I was like, oh, is it just like a functional-esque Ruby? And it's like, well, no, there's more to it. There's a whole process model and these other things. And it sounds like Crystal's in a similar place where it's like, I mean, yeah, it looks like Ruby, but also it has types. So it's very different. The types make such a big difference yeah. if you let them. <laughs> I have seen people... If you and It's like a vampire. You have to invite them in. But <laughs> exactly. once they're in, then they yeah. can... Yeah. If you but hang garlic way. over your door, you're not going to love Crystal. So... It's going to be the subtitle for the episode. I have <laughs> That's a great subtitle. Yeah, if you just try and write Ruby code, but in Crystal, you will not take advantage of the type system. I've seen a lot of shards do this. Shards are just and each language's name for their packages are spectacular. Ruby's got gems. Python yeah. has eggs. Weird, weird choice. What? Uh, yeah, like a Python egg. It's a weird. Oh, it's a weird choice. That's it's even weird, weirder. Yes. It actually got weirder when you explained. Right, it. but then shards. Shards are so fun. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, I got a shard. Cool. I don't know. I just call it a library, but it's shards. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot where they really don't take advantage of the type system, mm-hmm. uh, using a lot of strings instead of like hard coded methods, so right. the compiler can't catch that. Yep. I do want to create like 
maybe a series of screencasts on like how to think about things differently because mm-hmm. it does require a new way of thinking to use it. Similar to Elixir, just by nature of it being purely functional, you really do have to think about things differently. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with Crystal. So I want to come back just for a minute to Lucky and ask you, like, are there other things about it that you think really stand out or differentiate it or, are in fact, similar because you found them to be so useful? I guess to Rails probably is our core comparison. but So I would say that it doesn't look like Rails. If you look at almost anything, it doesn't look like the way Rails would do it. Mm-hmm. However, the concepts still apply. So I've found that once you can map, oh, this is how I do it in Rails, this is how I do it in Lucky, it's very easy to understand. So, for example... In Rails, you would have a separate routes file. Mm -hmm. You would have a controller. It would have up to, well, I guess as many actions as you want. But typically, if it's REST, it would be seven. Yes, the answer is that. There is only one answer to this question. That's another episode. Um, (laughs) So at most seven, we'll say. And then you would have different actions. You could have a private method that might apply to just edit and Mm -hmm. update. And you kind of mix and match everything. In Lucky, You just have the idea of an action, which is a controller in the MVC model, but Mm -hmm. I just call them actions because that's what you would call them in Rails, like you would call the index action. Um, But it's just a single class. So you would have users create, and you would say route, do, do all your stuff. The big difference there is because it's just one class per action, the route is in that class, and it's inferred from the class name if it's a RESTful route. So, which it should be. Which it should be. So 98% of the time, it's mm-hmm. going to infer that for you. You don't need to open the routes file at all. But what that lets you do is you have type safe access to parameters in your action. Because the route is defined in the action, mm-hmm. there's a macro that says, oh, okay, I know that there's an ID. Yep. And so I will create an ID method for you. Mm-hmm. If you mistype that or do something wrong, you'll know compile time. I will say the controller layer of Rails is probably the one that is always, I've just gotten so comfortable with it, but when I start to think about any aspect of it, like what you were saying of any given private method may apply to only one of the action methods. Mm -hmm. When you think about that class, a controller class, you enter, run one of the methods, one of the action methods, the public methods, and then you exit. You do not transition between the public methods. You'll never call yeah, more than one exactly. of them. And so it actually, the class analogy is pretty poor in that case, but we sort of just accepted it. And then similarly, I'm guessing you don't do the magic trick where instance variables get copied into the views. Probably something more explicit, but I don't like that part either. No, you do not. <laughs> you do not have just a magical... Just magically copy yeah. instance variables. In fact, I would say in actions, you rarely use instance variables. In fact, if you think about it, most of the time, the only reason you use instance variables in a Rails controller action is to pass it to a page. Yep. Not because you're using it somewhere else in that class. Yes, that has been my lived experience. So, yeah, the the big difference, and this will get into pages. Pages and Lucky, so if you ask, what is the weird thing? What is like Ooh. the funky... This isn't what you would have typically used. It's pages, views, whatever you want to call it. There are no templates. In Lucky, they are crystal classes. And you generate HTML with crystal methods. Yes, I did say crystal methods. It's really fun to say. And if you like crystal methods... Oh, I see demand. what you're going for there. Yeah. Yes, we'll have to include a link in the show notes. Okay, yeah. So at first, this sounds completely insane. I wasn't planning to do it. A lot of this stuff kind of just grew organically out of what the goals were. But it reads a lot like HTML. So Mm -hmm. in Elm, 
you also build HTML with functions. Yes. When you started to say this, I didn't react particularly strongly. So I was like, no, we do this in places, but it yeah. is very different than the string-based template sort of thing that we see in Rails. Definitely. And and you've got JSX where you can do the non-JSX version where you're... React.createElement, I believe. Yeah, I, th- I believe. Yep. Basically, JSX rewrites it into yes. that format. Yep. Or into there's a number of other libraries that do the same thing in the JavaScript world. So you can do React, but without... I guess you need React.createElement, but there are other similar libraries that have H. I want to say HyperScript is the name of that. So this idea okay. of uh, a builder syntax for HTML mm-hmm. rather than roughly string interpolation. I assume this does useful things like allowing for HTML escaping being more of a first-class concern and not something we have to really bolt on and figure out and try and be safe against or other things like that. Yeah, that's correct. That's actually one of the biggest reasons. I started investigating doing it with regular crystal methods was because I wanted HTML escaping. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is escaped by default. I'm glad um, my guess is like correct. You would do in Rails. There is a raw helper, mm-hmm. um, which will be just the raw string. Every once in a while, you, want. you need that escape hatch. Yeah, so you do need that occasionally. The nice thing about Ruby and Crystal is that you can build really concise methods. Mm-hmm. So when you want an ordered list, you would just say ul do, and then inside of that, whatever other methods you want. Mm-hmm. It's not like some big, huge thing where using crystal means you're typing three times as much code. Mm-hmm. You're actually typing a lot less. HTML is actually, it's uh, like it's XML, verbose. it's kind of verbose, yeah. So. It is. So it's very easy to write. Crystal has a formatter built in, a lot oh, like nice. Elm and what everybody loves. Oh, you got to so have the formatter. that's a huge nicety because you can just type stuff, hit save, bam, it's mm-hmm. perfectly formatted. But the biggest reason was that it allows you to do some really cool stuff. So say you have a page, we'll say users show page. Mm-hmm. You declare what it needs. So you'd say it needs a user. It will then enforce that in order to render that page at compile time, it needs to be passed a user. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool, but it makes it very easy to extract private methods. So we talk all the time at ThoughtBot and in our talks and everything else about well-named methods, small well-named methods. How often do you do that in a Rails view? In a Rails view? Well, not a method, but creating something Extracting a small small partial? Exactly. Very rarely. There is a conceptual and, I believe, runtime overhead to doing that. And they may have fixed the runtime one. That might be... um, pulling along historical baggage, but <laughs> I can never remember how to render a collection on the first try. I can never remember how to yeah. pass local variables into a thing. Yep. I also, people leak instance variables into partials mm-hmm. all the time, and that's one of the ones that I'm very particular about, <laughs> I guess is the best way to describe it, but yeah. that's one that is so easy to do and causes so many problems down the road, and it's so hard to unwind. You then have it this is. entanglement, and mm-hmm. so the idea that there's a way to live in a world where I can, in the same way that I decompose any other class, I can decompose my views, I like that. It feels very much like React, where you can pull out little components, and it's not free, but it's very, very easy and convenient to do that. So mm-hmm. I like that Crystal has this, or that Lucky specifically has this. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice way to approach things. You can just pull out private methods. Mm-hmm. You don't have that weird split in Rails, how you have these helper modules that somehow magically get included. Mm-hmm. Or having the same method defined in application controller and then also application helper. And defined as a helper in application oh, controller. Oh, yes. Yeah. All that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Now it's it's very clear what you do. Yeah. You include a module, um, just like you would with any other class. Mm-hmm. If you want a partial, a partial is a method. So you just extract the method. Um, and it's very easy to tell what that method needs. So a lot of times you extract a partial in Rails, 
and you go, what do I need to give this thing? Yeah. And you end up just kind of retesting it over and over until it stops complaining. <laughs> well, that's test-driven development, yeah, right? Yeah, I, I suppose so. You test until it's yeah. driven. A- until you realize that there's a hidden conditional in there that you didn't check for, and uh, you get a bug in production because you forgot to pass it something. Yeah. I do want to be clear. I feel like we've been poking some fun at Rails, but a lot of what we're saying here is sort of hindsight is 2020. Oh, and totally. I feel like if Rails were built now, we would build a very different framework. In fact, it might yeah. look much closer to Lucky because Lucky is built upon many years, many different frameworks going through iterations and discussions and best practices and failures and all of these different things. So I want to be clear that we're very much fans of Rails and Rails is fantastic. And particularly what you were highlighting of Crystal and Lucky are great, but they also are young. And so if we need to build an application, Rails is still, I think, the first thing that we reach for. I certainly still reach for it, even though there are other languages that are starting to pull on my attention because everything's there. I know that everything is there and Sidekick is there for background jobs and email sending and basically everything you want to do is covered. And again, maybe Crystal and Lucky will get to that place, but I want to make sure we don't leave this episode with just like, Rails is bad because Rails is not bad. Rails is wonderful. Yes, I think that's really good you said that. I do like Rails a lot. Part of the reason I said this is because I know that you do not feel that Rails is bad. I I could see how it would come off as me bashing Rails. It's more, I have used Rails so much that I'm intimately aware with some of the flaws yep. in it. And granted, five years from now, we may be looking at Lucky and being like, man, look at all oh, of those things. Idiot. Why like, did we make those so decisions? Stupid. Totally. Yeah. And really, also, to be fair, uh, that's not just a Rails problem. Mm-hmm. Any language or framework that uses templating does similar things. If you use Elixir and EEX or any of their other templating languages, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. You don't have a function where it's very clear what the arguments are. You mm-hmm. do have to pass them in, but when you open that partial or whatever you want to call that, it doesn't just have a line at the top saying, here's what you need to give mm. me. That's just kind of something that you can't get around with a template. Yeah, by sort it's of just, by definition. Yeah, you can't do it. Unless you like do some kind of hacky thing where there's like a comment at the top that somehow is like magically... There are a few a languages that something. I've seen, particularly Haskell and Scala both have templating languages that have some compile time magic that actually Mm -hmm. the top of it is a method signature essentially okay Um, so it is possible but in Mm -hmm. those cases they're they're ending up at something that's closer to what you're describing of this is mostly just a method or a class or some programmatic construct and similar like react purposefully makes the choice of we're not going to do templates we're going to do javascript and therefore all of the normal javascript rules apply with a slight variant in syntax but it is clear what the arguments are. And you can even take that a little bit further if you do prop types or TypeScript or Flow or any of those sort of things and say, here are the types of those things. So there, I think there are communities that are leaning into this. And I'm personally a big fan of the explicitness, the mm-hmm. um, the clarity and all of this. On the flip side, I, I was and still kind of am not a huge fan of the way Elm does their HTML, <laughs> mostly because it's not very approachable for a designer or Mm -hmm. someone that isn't familiar with Elm. You look at that, and it's very hard to tell what's being rendered, let alone how to change it. React uh, with JSX is much better. It looks a lot more like regular HTML. Mm -hmm. But it also has some oddities where sometimes it's not totally clear how to do something in the template in JavaScript mm-hmm. because it will just not work like you expect because it's not supported or, or whatever else. Yep. So some of my main goals in creating these pages were it had to look like HTML. Like you could format it 
the same. Mm-hmm. It's not an array of things. It looks like it. So you could have an H1, have a couple new lines, have a div, hmm. and then have a footer. And it's structured like you would a regular HTML document. And so designers should be able to open that up and be able to pick up fairly quickly what's going on. Some very lofty goals you've set for yourself. I mean, you kind of have to, right? Yeah. I may not reach them. Go big or go but home, But as long as, as I say. get close, I'm okay with that. What's the other one? Shoot for the moon. If you miss, you're bound to hit the stars. Yeah, exactly. Or is it the reverse of that? I never got that one right, but... I think, like, I'm a huge Tesla fan. I love Elon Musk. He's like my best friend. And he shoots, you know, for Mars. Literally. Yeah, literally. He has all kinds of crazy goals, and people beat up on him like, oh, you're, it's late, it's this. Who cares? He's still so far ahead of everyone else that it doesn't matter. And so I kind of think, like, I want to have big goals, and I may not reach them, and that's okay. But as long as it's pretty good and it's better than what I would be doing, I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, what a wonderful analogy for life. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, with that, I think we should probably wrap up. Paul, thank you so much for joining us, for talking about Crystal and Lucky and all the adventures that you're on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We will have information as to how to find Crystal and Lucky and you on the internet. Specifically, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 170. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes as well, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.